Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books Network Fantasy and Adventure Channel. I'm your host, Gabrielle Matthew, or if you're French, Gabrielle Mathieu. On today's show, I'll be welcoming writer James K. Morrow. During his distinguished career, he received the Nebula Award for Best Short Story, Bible Stories for Adults, number 17, The Deluge, he got a World Fantasy Award for the Best Novel, Only Begotten Daughter, in 1991, a Nebula Award for the Best Novella, City of Truth, in 1992, World Fantasy Award for Towing Jehovah, and the list goes on. Today we're going to be talking about his newest book, The Asylum of Dr. Caligari, It's a deft little novel and a perfect fit for people who are not just interested in fantasy, but also history, art, geography, and linguistics. If you're a man and appreciate an elegant woman wearing lace and jewelry more than a bronze bikini-clad babe with a vacuous stare, you might also appreciate the works of James Moreau. Like T. Corregesson Boyle, but with more palatable characters and less heft, James Morrow draws on actual historical figures in his novel. While there was no country of Weissenstadt, which would mean wheat state, and I did check, there was certainly a blue period for Pablo Picasso and a painting by Duchamp called New Descending a Staircase. As a German speaker and someone who grew up in an apartment filled with my father's art books, I got a lot of knowing chuckles out of terms such as Farbenmensch, which refers to a man who comes to life out of a painting. And I enjoyed the description of Picasso throwing the narrator and aspiring artist down the stairs. I would say this is less a fantasy novel in the usual modern sense than an allegory about war and the patriotic frenzy that inspires men to lay down their life. Set at the outbreak of World War I, the novel contrasts those who see the true horror of war, including the narrator, a lunatic, and a gay couple, with those who wish to profit from it. It's clear that Morrow, an elderly gentleman, has strong pacifistic leanings which were probably exercised as far back as the Vietnam War, and I will be talking to him about that. The famous poet Wilfred Owen implied ironically in his anti-war poem, Dulce et Decorumist, that it was sweet to die for one's country in the trenches, choking on corn and gas. That Morrow seems to agree is indicated in passages such as Durant described to Caligari, the villain. At long last, the architects of the Great War can look back on their many accomplishments, a devastated France, a demoralized Britain, a ransacked Germany, a receding line of corpses stretching from Amentias to Sanzibar. The construction of sentences is often intricate, like the example above. 
Many phrases are a delight, and I was amused, edified, and illumined. Be aware that the pleasures in this book are more to be found in the musings on art, history, and philosophy. The plot is an elegant scaffolding on which to hang these gems of observation. To give you a little taste, I'll read an excerpt introducing our protagonist, Francis Wyndham. Francis is an American painter. The novel is set in the beginning of World War I. This part explains how Francis ends up in Europe as a somewhat naive American, where he eventually will land a job as an art teacher in the asylum of the dreadful Dr. Caligari. So, what does a bookish farm boy from central Pennsylvania do upon realizing his eyes are in love with Pablo Picasso's woman with a mustard pot? He learns to speak rudimentary French, borrows $200 from his doting Aunt Lucy, assembles a portfolio of his best charcoal sketches, watercolors, and unframed oils, most of them tableau of urban life rendered in his impression of Impressionism, and he finds a job peeling potatoes aboard a freighter bound for Le Havre. My crossing occurred without mishap. I proceeded directly to Paris by train, hoping to locate Signor Picasso and perhaps find employment as his apprentice. Although my Pennsylvania Academy art diploma read Francis J. Wyndham, I decided to represent myself as Zoltan Ziska, descended from a line of North American gypsies, famous for their spare but powerful folk art. Things did not go as planned. Enraged by my presumption, Picasso escorted me to the second floor landing outside his Montmartre studio, threw my portfolio down the escalier, and taking me by the shoulders, pushed me in the same direction. I tumbled to the bottom, humiliated but unharmed. Rube descending a staircase. As to coup de grace, he hurled a jar of azure-tinted turpentine towards my recumbent form. He was evidently still in his blue period. The glass struck the wall and shattering stained my white shirt with pale blotches. For several weeks, I declined to wash the shirt, regarding it as a Picasso by other means. But in time, I decided that the afternoon's true artistic event had been the spectacle of my injection from a mad Spaniard's life. So in a moment, we're going to have Jim live on the microphone. Welcome to the show, Jim, and thanks for joining us today. Great to be here, Gabrielle. So today we're discussing your new book, The Asylum of Dr. Caligari. It seems like an allegory which concerns itself both with reason and fantasy and the nature of reality. For such a slim volume, it packs a great deal of philosophy in what, at first, really seems like an entertaining story. So to begin, tell us a little bit about the German movie, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari which was released in the 1920s. Yes, it's uh, made in the year 1919, I think, released in 1920, uh, and was very well reviewed for its uh, expressionist decor, a very experimental mise-en-scene in, in Caligari. Uh, several years after the, the release of the film, 
the two screenwriters, Carl Mayer and, and Hans Janowitz, began promoting what I would call an allegorical reading of the movie, uh, an interpretation in which Caligari, the, the mountebank and hypnotist, equals the military and political authorities that sent hundreds of thousands of young men off to die in the trenches of, of the Great War. And then the other main character, Cesare the Somnambulist, of course, becomes the average infantryman mesmerized by Caligari into, uh, into doing his, his murderous work. So in my novella, I make all of this very explicit. Uh, you don't have to know the movie to appreciate my book, but there are sly references and allusions throughout the text. Um, but in my version of things, it's Caligari doesn't simply use his, his talents as a hypnotist to deprive young men of their free will. He, he creates an immense expressionist painting that, uh, that, which he calls ecstatic wisdom. A phrase he gets from Nietzsche, who's been a, uh, a patient at the asylum of Dr. Caligari in the, you know, it's in a fictional European nation called Wiesenstadt. Um, this painting has the, the power, a supernatural painting, and it has the power to inspire entire regiments to rush headlong into, into battle. It fills the spectator with the Kriegslusts. Kriegslust, am I pronouncing that correctly? Kriegslust, yeah. I think Kriegslust, so. Love, love, <laughs> love of war. Uh, and I should mention that Caligari does this for a price. Uh, he he uh, is paid by all of the political and military authorities on all sides of the Great War. So he's the ultimate uh, uh, war war profiteer. So uh, talking about Nietzsche, who you just mentioned as a patient at the asylum. A little bit of background on Nietzsche. He inspired Anne Rand, the author of Atlas Shrugged, who's been an inspiration of the conservative movement. Admirers of the philosophy describe it as one of self-responsibility. He had a very funny passage in your novel. It refers to Nietzsche as having the following maladies while he was a patient. Incurable sophistry, untreatable pomposity, Inoperable honesty is the central problem with syphilis. <laughs> From that sentence, I gathered you're not a big fan of Nietzsche, yet you do state he has inoperable honesty. So please tell us more about your view of his philosophy. Uh, well, uh, of course, not only was uh, Ayn Rand a, a disciple of Nietzsche, but even worse, uh, his ideas were picked up by the Third Reich, and many Nazis thought they were fulfilling Nietzsche's program. His sister, his sister was was horribly anti-Semitic, but this was not remotely true of, of Nietzsche himself. He actually hated anti-Semitism. Uh, would have hated the Third Reich. I'm I'm pretty confident in that opinion, uh, and and would have had no use for Nazis, but. He couldn't control how people used his ideas. I, uh, so I, you're, you're right. I have, 
I'm ambivalent toward Nietzsche, schizoid reaction. I, I think of him as one of those philosophers you fall in love with in your adolescence, or perhaps in your early 20s. But as you get older, his whole project, all of the strutting and bravado, kind of wears thin. Uh, it, in my novella, I have uh, Caligari paraphrasing Nietzsche's thought, not necessarily in, in a fair way, but the paraphrase reads like this. Nothing is true. Everything is permitted. Morals are nefarious. Pity is for weaklings. So let us turn our lives and our deaths into works of art. Now, that said, what I what I admire about Nietzsche uh, is that what do I call it? inoperable honesty, that raw um, honesty, that refusal to settle for received wisdom, refusal to tell people what they want to hear. Um, I mean, certainly the the critique of, of Christianity that we find in Daybreak uh, is very severe. Um, you know, I'm a known uh, as a theological satirist, as someone who's not very sympathetic to organized religion. But Nietzsche's Daybreak makes my blasphemous thought experiments seem like uh, like Sunday school lessons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and I will say. Uh, in conclusion, that I owe, I owe a great personal debt to Nietzsche. Uh, I couldn't have written my my Death of God novel, Towing Jehovah, uh, without without Nietzsche perched on my shoulder, encouraging me to be outrageous. Uh, uh, it's 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 one of those novels about a super tanker captain who gets uh, the assignment of bearing the two mile long corpse of God to its final <laughs> resting place, a tomb in the Arctic that's been hollowed out by some angels. And in interviews, I've called Towing Jehovah a, a Nietzschean sea saga. God is dead, right? <laughs> God is dead. We have, we have killed him. Where did we get the power to wipe away the horizon, et cetera, et cetera. And, and one of my characters actually delivers that, that speech. Uh, I think it's from, uh, from the joyful wisdom Mm-hmm. So we're talking about honesty versus delusion, and you were saying you admired Nietzsche in that he was frank about what he saw as delusionary thought. Delusion is referred to frequently during the course of your current novel. We have, for example, reason convincing fantasy that violent monsters were desirable and fantasy coercing reason into forsaking its hideous allegiance to facts. In what manner does reason desire violence? Does it have to do with the avoidance of pity? In the, uh, in the early pages of, of my novella, the, the Asylum of Dr. Caligari, uh, we meet the hero, a painter from, from Pennsylvania, Name is Francis Wyndham. Uh, another allusion to the original German silent film, uh, which has a major character named Francis. He um, gets a job teaching art therapy at Caligari's institution. And on his first night in the asylum, Francis spies on 
Caligari, who's rumored to be a sorcerer. And he sees him making a painting, a magical painting. Uh, he's, Caligari is brewing, brewing pigments as if they were potions. It's kind of like, it's intended to be, uh, to evoke horror, horror movies, like, like a mad scientist, mm-hmm. mad scientist laboratory. Um, with, with these uh, pigments burbling away on Bunsen burners. And Francis immediately thinks of Goya's famous etching of the artist asleep at his desk with his head cradle in his arms. Uh, and and he's, he's dreaming, and his dreaming mind conjures up this maelstrom of, of predatory uh, mammals and, and birds. Um, and it has a, a cap, famous caption. In some ways, the caption is more famous than the etching. This is the, the motto, the sleep of reason breeds monsters. The sleep of reason breeds monsters. And it occurs to Francis that that sentence can actually be read two ways. It occurred, that occurred to me uh, uh, several years ago uh, as both a, as possibly a celebration of reason, um, but also as a critique of it. He thinks of... Uh, William Blake's horror of science, uh, Blake's horror of the prestige and the hegemony of, of techno science. Uh, Blake said, Pray God, keep us from single vision and Newton's sleep. Mm. Uh, pray God, no, it actually it rhymes, doesn't it? Pray God, us keep from single vision and Newton's sleep, which is a, a critique of. Of rational knowledge. So I think of Newton's sleep, I would bracket that with Goya's idea of the sleep of reason. Reason is something that puts us to sleep um, and uh, deprives us of fellow feeling. Uh, not an idea I'm remotely sympathetic to, but you hear it all the time. Mm-hmm. The, the critics of the Enlightenment will lay <laughs> at its feet. Uh, much of the malaise of modernity, including its horrible violence. So, um, so in 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 his mind, my hero uh, is imagining that in the mind of Caligari, reason and monsters have entered into this condition of mutual de- betrayal, as you said, reason convincing fantasy that violent monsters. Uh, were desirable and fantasy coercing reason into for, forsaking its tedious allegiance to fact. Uh, but my my own view of this is to paraphrase of Churchill's famous remark about democracy. Um, and it's a thought I had while composing another novel, another novel of mine. It's called The Last Witchfinder, and it's a celebration of the, the birth of the Enlightenment and the coming of the scientific worldview. My paraphrase goes as follows. Reason is the worst possible mode in which to negotiate the world, except for all the others. <laughs> right. So actually, uh, you don't see reason as something that would uh, convince one of violent monsters. You see it as kind of a hedge against a wild, wide, uh, wild world that is ungovernable. I can understand uh, that. I mean, as a as a armchair philosopher, uh, I'm uh, ex- extremely fond of 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 reason, and <laughs> I'm not 
patient with critiques of the Enlightenment. I'm, I'm willing to listen to them, but I, but I, I it, as far as I'm concerned, reason's the only game in town when it comes to conducting our affairs with, with each other. Mm. And I think a vast and, and, and bloody body of evidence called, called human history that tells us that if you keep you key your understanding of reality to the supernatural, that's uh, almost certainly a recipe for disaster, certainly at the political level. And certainly a recipe for burning women at the stake because you think they're witches. Yeah. It's also Indeed. a recipe for I that. Think you, <laughs> I think you would be in the, the readership for my novel, The Last Witch Finder. I actually have it on my to-read list. Let's uh, similar to things that inspire me in my own writing where I'm thinking about uh, the embrace of reason and feeling into an entire functional human being that can use both <laughs> to come to reasonable conclusions. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I should hasten to add, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't be in the game of fiction making if I were not uh, a romantic at heart. I mean, Absolutely. Uh, to, to have to exist in, in reciprocity, romantic and the reasonable, uh, the, art, the artistic and the analytical. Um, I, I, uh, you know, I, I don't think we need that third force, the, uh, the embrace of the supernatural, you know, mm -hmm. religion, for want of a better word. There's definitely a strong current of interest in art in your book as well. After all, the protagonist is a painter. And uh, I think that your work speaks to the influence of art on the world and its ability to make us see the world in a new way. You mentioned several artists in your novel, in your novella. Uh, could you tell us a bit about how you think the work of Pablo Picasso and Marcel Duchamp shaped culture? Uh, yeah, let, let me continue to, to spoil the plot. Mm -hmm. By the way, I'm, I'm a person who doesn't mind spoilers at all. I think uh, uh, the the movie or, uh, or or book that can't survive spoilers may not be worth one's time. Mm -hmm. Nice. Uh, but Francis has a particularly talented student, uh, a woman. She's, she's quite a bit older than, than he is. Uh, her name is Ilona Vessels, and she suffers from a, a spider complex. And she also has magical powers, just like Caligari. She's um, uh, an unformed sorcerer or enchantress herself, but she doesn't know how to control her, her gifts. But together, Francis and Ilona and uh, Ilona's previous art therapist, uh, uh, who's now a soldier, his name is Victor Zimmer, the three of them conspired to defeat Caligari. They, they collaborate on a pacifist painting that will counter Caligari's panorama, ecstatic wisdom. I think of the, uh, the anti-Vietnam War protests of the late 60s, the early 70s, and how the, the activists of that time, and I, I was one of them, uh, the activists would display large, full-scale reproductions of Picasso's great anti-war painting, Guernica, 
that came out of the, the Spanish Civil War. Uh, an interesting uh, anecdote that I'm fond of is evidently Salvador Dali and Picasso uh, knew each other. And at one point, uh, they're, they're surveying Guernica and Picasso points, uh, Dali, Salvador Dali, points to the painting uh, and turns to Picasso. And, and Dali was uh, a supporter of the fascists in the, in the Spanish Civil War. Uh, Dali turns to Picasso and says, did, did you do that? And Picasso replies, no, you did. Um, anyway, so, so Guernica, the painting Guernica, supplied the, the template for Ilona's, my, uh, my uh, artist heroine's great, gruesome, grisly anti-war painting, which she calls Todentanz, the, mm-hmm. the dance of the dead. Yes, I like the name Tautentanz because actually in my novels I have a compound Tautentanz, which is a psychedelic that influences people in very shocking and usually negative ways. So I was very pleased to see it in another book, even though it was used <laughs> in a, a different but yep, similarly shocking way. So uh, speaking of Ilona, uh your first scene where she and Francis are together. The scene is at odds with the distant, cultured, and ironic tone of the book overall. Our protagonist, Francis, makes love with her in somewhat graphic detail, including menstrual blood. At first, I was slightly taken aback, and I think I get it now. Ilona is an artist, as he said, and she concerns herself also with the sign. That's the German word for a direct experience that isn't filtered through the brain. Is this first act of intimacy for Francis and Ilona representative of something else besides sex? Um, let's see. I need. Uh, I think I lost my notes on that question. <laughs> <laughs> what? Uh, oh, okay. The um, yeah, for me, the the most terrifying aspect of Caligari's magical painting is that it makes it makes trench warfare somehow seem thrilling in a sensual, beautiful, even erotic way. So I wanted to show that for some people, some people such as Ilona, the thrill of beholding. Caligari's panorama, ecstatic wisdom, uh, that thrill would take the form of sexual arousal uh, rather than uh, rather than uh, Kriegslust. As, as for the blood, um, well, my, to tell you the truth, my main reason for incorporating uh, menstruation into the, the lovemaking scene between Ilona and Francis, and it is a, a a gritty graphic scene. Mm-hmm. My main reason was just to let them have spontaneous sex without without fear of, of pregnancy. Oh, uh, okay. I thought but, that was... But, you know, no, actually, you, you, I, I think you're onto something because I, I think maybe half-consciously I wanted to put blood on stage because it can be thought of as a kind of pigment. And later in the story, Alona 
does become obsessed with Pignant per se as uh, actually as the subject of potential paintings uh, that she imagines herself making one day. Pigment as the uh, as the subject, the docile of of pigment, and what's really going on here, of course, is that um, she's actually single handedly inventing abstract expressionism. I thought so. Uh, yes, two two generations or so before it actually uh, before it actually came on the scene. I I did like the blood being in there too because blood being part of the reproductive cycle. Is actually could also be a sign of fertility and of the creating of life, and so it's in opposition to the Creek's list, which is the taking of life, and it kind of worked as a counterpoint in that sense. So that- oh, I, I like the interpretation. Thank you. I'll start. <laughs> I'll start making that point in in uh, subsequent interviews. Oh, okay. Glad to have inspired. Well, talking about Francis, uh, he changes after he meets Alona. Uh, when she meets him, she describes him as having a callow but intelligent face. And in the course of his induction as an art teacher at the asylum, the villain, Dr. Caligari, explains a treatment philosophy. We charm the patient into embracing a self-image incompatible with the behavior that brought him here. I was wondering, is this true of Francis Wyndham as well, even though he's not a patient? Uh, you know, I, I, I hadn't thought of that, <laughs> but I think that's a, a good interpretation of uh, Francis's, uh, Francis's character arc, um, mm-hmm. Gabrielle. Uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, he wants to be, he thinks of himself as a heroic, uh, but sort of ipso facto passive artists, somebody who can can sit before his easel in his garret all day and change the world merely through painting. Uh, He he wants to create pictures that will will do what he calls rattling the complacency of the bourgeoisie. But he learns uh, that it is not nearly as simple as that. Uh, And so to put my villain out of commission to 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 uh, stop this insane magician from his uh, lucrative but uh, uh, detestable project, he must become another sort of hero, Francis, uh, and one who actually ends up in a tank on the Western Front, seeking to destroy Caligari's painting with a flamethrower. Uh, but going back to therapy. To Caligari's therapeutic technique. Uh, I just want to read that passage quickly. Where is it? Um, page 19. Uh, this is uh, Caligari interviewing Francis for the for the job. And Caligari says, the, the, uh, the future belongs to the brave new world of heteropathic medicine. Francis says, I've heard of homeopathic medicine. Caligari says, treating a disease by aping its symptoms instead of attacking the cause. That's homeopathy. Um, But uh, his heteropathy is 
uh, charming the patient into embracing a self-image incompatible with the behavior that brought him here? Does he suffer from a split personality? Then convince him through drugs and hypnotism that he is the god of the Jews, that is the most monotheic, mono, monolithic entity imaginable. Isn't that trading one form of derangement for another? At first, of course, the patient may try to play the part of a supreme being. He'll devise a canon of commandments and entreat his fellows to obey them. But in time, his spasms of dissociation and his delusions of divinity will neutralize one another. How ingenious. In cases of uncontrolled female sexual desire, we persuade the patient that she is a sister of the Carmelite order. Are our nonfomaniacs, as it were, go on to lead surprisingly fulfilling lives? I love that part. <laughs> well, tell us some more about Francis's lover, Ilana Wessels. Is she a trickster figure? Uh, you know, actually, I'm just realizing when you say that. That, that Nietzsche was a trickster figure. I think uh -huh. that's what I do admire about his project. Now, you can't pin him down. Uh, he approached his philosophy in such an aesthetic and playful manner, which sets him apart from uh, so many philosophers who put a premium on being ponderous. Mm -hmm. But um, uh, so I, li I like the term also for Alona, trickster figure. I, I think she's as important a character as, as my hero, Francis, and my villain, Caligari. Uh, she's the one who actually makes the anti-war painting. It's her talent. It's her passion. Uh, it's, if you will, her, her madness that, that makes Totentanz happen. Um, she's the one who really uh, is able to counter Caligari's War machine, the 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 uh, the painting works. It turns uh, it turns the soldiers who see it into pacifists. It makes them it makes them desert and and, <laughs> and start to live off the land and become uh, uh, you know refugees from this uh, insane and and meaningless uh, cataclysm that's happening on the, the Western Front. So, uh, when when I was creating Colonna, uh, Ilona. I, um, I I resolved very quickly to not make her a victim, even though she's locked up, um, because the mass media have given us a, a stereotype, uh, I think a very pernicious stereotype of female insanity. We've all seen this image, the pathetic, the pathetic female patient who's cowering in a white smock, you know, in her cell under the paternalistic gaze of her keepers. Um, I, I just hate that cliche. I think of uh, the Kate Beckinsale character in the movie Stonehurst, Stonehurst Asylum, uh, which is other on other grounds, I think a very compelling and, and underrated movie. It's actually an adaptation of Edgar Allan Poe's The the system of Dr. Tarr and Professor Feather. So there's Stonehurst Asylum. There's uh, Eva Green in one of the Penny Dreadful episodes. It's called A Blade of Grass. Um, 
And I, I like the, the Penny, the Penny Dreadful series, but yeah, they, they've got her in the, in the, in the padded room at one point. And, uh, and even the character of uh, Sherlock Holmes sister in uh, BBC Sherlock in the episode called the final problem, even, even that character, Eurus Holmes, I think partakes of, of the stereotype, even though Moffat Gatiss are certainly very sophisticated when it comes to, to feminism. So I was delighted to, to realize that in the asylum of Dr. Caligari, I could sort of destruct that, uh, deconstruct that, that, that malign cliche. Uh-huh. It all seems to date back to Freud's view of women in Victorian views that women are hysterical and they somehow need to be constrained in a little room and be safe somewhere from their dangerous emotions and their even more dangerous sexuality. So I was glad also to see a soft date that is a plump, lusty <laughs> woman who actually chooses to live in the asylum for mysterious purposes of her own. Yeah, she's she's having trouble coping with the outside world as as we all do. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, she she is Zaftig. Um, I I felt okay about the sex scene between uh, a, a couple who are technically teacher and student because she's she's older than quite a <laughs> bit older than than Francis and 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 they're both just enthralled to the uh, to the unintended eroticism of of Caligari's painting. But yeah, Freud is on the whole, no, no friend of feminism. I mean, well, you know, the word hysteria, right. Uh, mm-hmm. Is, is the, is the same as the word is, is another word for the uterus, I, I guess. And derived um, from the poisons so, that gather in the uterus. Yeah. Yeah. Hence, hence the term uh, hysterectomy. Uh, and uh, you know, Freud's famous, useless remark, you know, anatomy is destiny. Um, mm. It's gratifying that all that's been been thrown up for grabs mm-hmm. of late. And we're hearing much about transgenderism and other healthy developments, I think, on the, on the landscape. Some things are changing fast and some things don't seem to change much because uh, talking about your activities during the Vietnam War and the protests – uh, you have an open forum here if you'd like to to talk about <laughs> the political situation and your feelings about um, military interventions. I'm not going to comment as the host, but you may speak. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I'm uh, a pacifist, and I was a, a conscientious objector to the Vietnam War. That was my draft status. Um, and believe me, it's not easy to get that status when you're an atheist, as uh-huh. I am. I, I had to uh, make a, a complex argument to my draft board, and they didn't accept it. They just said, where do you, where do you guys get this malarkey? Uh, you're going to Vietnam. But I appealed it. I appealed it, and actually, I, I was accorded that status at the, at the state level in, mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania. Uh, uh, my my anti-war sentiments are on display not only in Asylum of Dr. Caligari, but in a novel I wrote in the 80s called This is the Way the World Ends, which is a satire on all of the, the nuclear saber rattling that was coming out of the, the Reagan administration. Um, I even wrote another World War One story 
a short story called Known But to God and Wilbur Hines. And it's from the viewpoint of the ghost of the man who is actually buried in the tomb of the unknown soldier in Arlington Cemetery in Virginia. And we learn that the unknown soldier was in fact a communist who killed prostitutes and murdered his commanding officer. Um, so yeah, Vietnam, I, I, I think the reason it was such a tragedy, such a debacle, is that it wasn't so much a war per se as a, as a misguided, demented attempt to use to use war as a medium of communication. Um, I don't know if that makes sense, but it, it seemed to me the Vietnam War was primarily being used to, to send the communist world a message that we stand ready to turn the Cold War into a hot war. We're very serious about opposing you commies. Um, and uh, so, so war as medium rather than let's try to write another glorious chapter in the history of American military intervention. What's so frightening about Donald Trump, of course, is that he seems <laughs> this isn't <laughs> this will be in the headlines. It already has and it will be for weeks to come. He seems to prepare to use to use nuclear war, nuclear war, nuclear war as a medium of communication uh, to communicate with North Korea. But that, enough said. I've had, that's another day's discussion. Mm-hmm. That would be a very long discussion with probably people writing in from all over to argue one point or another. So to move on to something completely different, or somewhat different, in 2004, you and your wife, Kathy, wrote the Tolkien lesson plans that appear on a Houghton Mifflin website. Tolkien has had his detractors of late, including Philip Pullman and China Neville. Some might argue that Tolkien's work is not relevant anymore. What do you and Kathy think can be gained by studying his work? Uh, well, I'll begin by saying that you know, as, as an atheist and a man of the left, uh, I, I appreciate the criticisms by Pullman and China Mieville and others, uh, the, the criticisms that have been leveled against Tolkien. I might even add a few of my own. Uh, but, but that said, uh, there are three things I really admire about Tolkien's thought as it's on display in the, in the Hobbit and especially the Lord of the Rings. First of all, his environmentalism, I think he's remarkably prescient about the, the, the coming crisis in, in uh, the, 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 the way that we're soiling the planet, um, uh, soiling our own house, as it were. And I appreciate his, his paganism, I, I think is the right word. For me, I came away from, from, uh, rethinking Tolkien and writing these lesson plans in collaboration with my wife. And these included discussion questions and uh, uh, suggested activities and, and lots of handouts from the kinds of literature that influenced Tolkien. Um, I came away deciding he's in the grand tradition of the Catholic heretic, uh, a tradition that embraces, uh, you know, characters like uh, uh, Teilhard de Chardin and Thomas Merton and Hans Kung and, well, arguably St. Francis of Assisi. Because that, that paganism, I think, uh, you know, 
probably wouldn't go down so well in Rome if they decided to worry about about Tolkien's uh, oeuvre, and one could almost imagine him being excommunicated mm-hmm. uh, uh, for uh, you know for that kind of earthiness. And there's there's really uh, while there's lots of supernaturalism happening in the Lord of the Rings, nobody seems to be remotely interested in in religious observances. Uh, there are no rites that are being routinely performed. Uh, there's no, there are no churches anywhere in Middle Earth. Um, and, and finally, the third thing I like, you know, I like the environmentalism and the paganism. The third thing is um, his grasp of the mentality of tyrants. And now we are now we're back to Donald Trump again. There's a there's a wonderful speech that Gandalf has at the Council of uh, Elrond, um, it, in which he talks about how they think they can defeat Sauron. Gandalf sort of gets inside the head of of the Dark Lord. Gandalf says, "Quote, well, I, I'm, I've opened my I've opened my my." copy of the Fellowship of the Ring here. Well, let folly be our cloak, a veil before the eyes of the enemy, for he is very wise and weighs all things to a nicety in the scales of his malice. But the only measure that he knows is desire, desire for power. And so he judges all hearts. That is, thus he judges all hearts in that manner. He, uh, into his heart, the thought will not enter that any will refuse it, that having the ring, he, we may seek to destroy it. If we seek this, we shall put him out of reckoning. And I think that's an amazing insight that, that uh, tyrants lack the imagination to empathize with people who are not like them. That's great, uh, yeah. And the way, you know, how does Donald Trump see the world? It's all winners and losers, and everybody must care about winning before any other possible value. Because it's Donald Trump's only value, as far as I can tell, is winning. Well, I guess that's what happens when a person or an entity that is very narcissistic and has no compassion for other beings seeks to gain control. Is uh, they also have no, uh, they don't have the ability to ascertain other people's motivations or see into other people's emotional complexities because life is very simple for them. They take everything, and that's all they know. And that's is a great quote that you found in the Lord of the Rings. Yeah, it's it's a you know let folly be our cloak. I think for 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 Trump. Uh, any sort of sacrifice, self-sacrifice, is folly. Compassion is folly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, the, the love is is for fools. It's all about uh, it's all about conventional prizes. Uh, it's a very empty existence uh, when one lives that way. Speaking in general, as the host, <laughs> no yeah, I, 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 Trump would be <laughs> more. More to be pitied than despised, as Shakespeare put it, if he were not the head of the free world. Mm -hmm. Well, what I think about all the detractions of Tolkien is, of course, that we're all products of our time and place, and that it's really not 
realistic to judge someone by the standards of a completely different time and place. I mean, I could even make that excuse for Freud in a way, but I think Tolkien's work is has continued to be inspiring to me personally, just because there is there really is something otherworldly about it, whether we're going to be rational creatures or not. Maybe it was another world that existed in his head and nowhere else, but it was my first experience of being able to voluntarily leave this world anytime I wanted to. I could just pick up his book and the elevator took me somewhere else. So I'll always be grateful yeah. to Tolkien for that. Well, yeah, and I think uh, there's a sense we all we all belong in Middle Earth. I, I've never liked the term escapism when it's when it's applied to to genre literature, genre movies. I I would call it arrival. You know, we, you know, when when you when you when the magic happens of being mm-hmm, transported mm-hmm. into Middle Earth, you say, "Well, I've arrived. I belong here." Or <laughs> you know, or Frankenstein's Laboratory, or any of the you know uh, any of the great Gothic settings. There's a a wonderful essay about Tolkien by Ursula K. Le Guin, whose literary criticism I think is first rate. And she's, as a critic, she's had more influence on me, I think, than any other writer. And she talked about her love of, of Lord of the Rings. But she she has her critique. As you say, he was a man of his time. There's a, there's a kind of uh, celebration or, or ratification of, of the class system, or at least uh, a, a, a lack of... of uh, frustration with it. Uh, she said that the, she gets so tired of, of Sam Ganji. Exactly. Oh, Mr. Frodo, can I do this for you? Or Mr. Frodo, let's, uh, w- what, what's the next favor? And she says she wants to, it, it, uh, Le Guin wants to wishes somebody who would start a Hobbit socialist party. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. She, she, lo- she loves the books. Yeah. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. Just uh, in closing, I'd like to hear a little bit more about what you're working on these days. Uh, well, you'll never guess, Gabrielle. It's a it's a theological fantasy. Oh my! Maybe I'm going to get acu- accused of being in a rut. I've always wanted to work with uh, the story, the grand story of the Emperor Constantine the Great. And a lot of my fiction of late has uh, has been more like straightforward mainstream historical fiction than it's been like genre fiction. Uh, this new novel, which is called Lazarus is Waiting, will be frankly science fictional, but uh, the, the science fiction mechanism is, is completely off stage. When you dramatize the reign of Constantine the Great, you get this... Uh, uh, wonderful, uh, 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 really strong, bold strokes uh, to work to work with. You get uh, you get his vision of the of the cross before before he uh, takes takes Rome back from from uh, uh, Maxentius, the, the dreadful tyrant who was there at the time. And you get you get the Battle of the Milvian Bridge. Uh, where, whereby, uh, whereby uh, Constantine consolidated his power, and you and you get the Council of Nicaea mm-hmm. with uh, all of the 
uh, theological hand-wringing over the status of Jesus. Was he subordinate to God or was he uh, completely consubstantial with God? Uh, it's called Lazarus is Waiting because it's from the viewpoint of the Lazarus of the Gospel of John, who is who's able to tool through time and space on a magical Egyptian barge. And uh, he touches down in, in, in first century Carthage, a 20th century New York City, but he spends most of his time at the court of Constantine the Great. Uh, and, and he starts to participate in the Council of Nicaea. This is A.D. 325. Um, he, uh, uh, he actually testifies on behalf of the heretical viewpoint, the doctrine of, uh, of Presbyter Arius, the, the doctrine that, that Jesus was subordinate to God. And the stakes are pretty high for my hero, for my Lazarus, because uh, if he's not successful, is the woman he loves, who is one of these Arian heretics, will be severely, severely punished by the bishops. Well, we look forward to when that's coming out. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jim. You're very welcome, Gabrielle. This was a lot of fun. Let's maybe we'll do it again when <laughs> Lazarus appears. Okay. Thanks for joining us today on New Books in Fantasy and Adventure. For my interview with James Morrow, the author of The Asylum of Dr. Caligari. You can find out more about Jim at his website. That's www.jamesmorrow.info. That's info, not .com. And his name is spelled Morrow like tomorrow. I'm Gabrielle Matthew, the author of the historical fantasy Falcon series, which includes The Falcon Flies Alone and the upcoming The Falcon Strikes. I blog about travel and books at my website, GabrielleMatthew.com. My last name has an unusual spelling, M-A-T-H-I-E-U. You can also follow me on Twitter to get updates about new podcasts. That's at Gabrielle Author, first name spelled G-A-B-R-I-E-L-L-E. Till next time.